Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. I invite you to go in your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 2. We're reminded of countless traditions and memories that are made during the holidays, during the Christmas season. One of those is Christmas Eve service, and this year it's at 5 o'clock right here, candlelight service. I encourage you, if we're going to get Christmas right, put remembering Christ at the heart of it. Put all the other things, if you're able to, aside and gather and worship. It's such a sweet service. I encourage you to be gathered with the body of Christ. It's always a wonderful time. And tell your family, we'll be there. We'll be there a little bit later. We're worshiping. If it's all, if at all possible, think of that as you plan. We gather to fix our eyes on Jesus, and we enjoy the gifts that he gives to us And he's our father in heaven. If you know Christ as Savior, then you have that ability that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our father who art in heaven. We hallow his name. If I was to ask you to think of what is the greatest gift you've ever been given? And and it probably goes up and down related to the person who gave you that gift. Sometimes gifts are valuable and you appreciate the value. Maybe it's jewelry, something that's truly valuable. But many times the meaningful gifts are related to the person who gave the gift. If you love that person and they give you a drawing, they make something for you. There's something about that that's special. It's meaningful because they were thinking and you knew that and there's love expressed and you receive that gift with love. Sadly, if there's brokenness in a relationship and someone may be as wealthy as possible to buy whatever they want to buy for their loved ones, but if there's no love, the gift really comes with no value. It can actually do more damage and and be angering when somebody gives a gift and, and raise emotions that are almost unexplainable when there's a break in fellowship and it feels like they're trying to buy your love. Keep in mind, loved ones, that our giving to God as we worship him through our giving, our giving to one another, it's just a reflection. It's a small reflection of God's perfect giving to us. The old saying is this way. Maybe you've heard someone say it. Usually, it's someone who's walked with the Lord for decades in their life, and they say, you can never outgive God. You ever heard someone say that to you? Usually, it's not the person who just turned their life over to Christ. Usually, it's a person that has walked with God for many years, and they've seen him time and time again demonstrate his goodness, his gracious generosity, and they have proven him faithful. And they have now not just heard about the goodness of God, but they have experienced the goodness of God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he focused on this when he said every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
So when you give gifts this year, remember, it's just a small glimpse. It's appropriate because God is the one who has given and he wasn't stingy. He gave the best that he could give in his son, Jesus. Now, the tradition holds that St. Nicholas is the one who would give gifts, and he would give them anonymously. He simply wanted to do the same thing that we have given when Irfan was here and others when they have projects and they want to go overseas and they want to give in the name of Jesus. That's what he did often caring for those who were in poverty, orphans, they had no parents, and he simply wanted them to know there is a God and he loves you. But he would do it anonymously. He would do it quietly. How things have changed. It would be kind of odd, wouldn't it, if all of a sudden the next time Irfan comes and we have little Irfans and pictures of Irfan around, like, you gave gifts and now it's Irfan Day. You know, no. That's not why he's giving. It's so that they know there's a God who is the greatest giver how distorted and twisted things can get. And the world, I want you to pay attention to this in the Christmas season, how easily the storyline changes to be the spirit of Christmas. And if you heard this and you know this, and some of you may be experiencing that while the world seems happy, sometimes at Christmas it can be the most difficult time of the year. Depression can go up at Christmas time. And I would argue for this this morning that all of, you know, many of the Hollywood traditions do not help us in this because at the end of the day, it's if we have we, that's enough. We are not always guaranteed to have one another. If you have family, if you have blessings, if you have whatever, fill in the blank, but as we come to God's greatest gift, the reason why Christians can enter into a season like this and our joy is unfading and unending, like we talked about last week, is because the greatest gift is Jesus, not the stuff that we get preoccupied with. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Luke chapter 2, Luke is preparing this account for Theophilus, he's researched, he's put it all together. He gives the birth narrative. And it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of God. Loved ones, as we unpack this text this morning, in this time that we have together, this is, this is what this text is saying. This is what the children sang, that Jesus was given for us, that Jesus was given for us. And you can even make that personal. 
that Jesus was given for you. Jesus was given for us, and we're just going to look at five Five truths that support this. Jesus was given for us at the divinely appointed time is what Luke is telling us. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he puts this account together and he fixes this in a certain appointed time. He says in those days that Jesus' birth was really a historical event. It really happened in history and so it's on record and it's trustworthy. The setting is fixed. It's within the context, uh, Luke chapter 1, of the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth, long after their childbearing years were gone. Zacharias, your wife is going to have a child. Well, how is this going to happen? Actually, you're not going to talk until it does happen. Man, Zach's been in there a while. When's he coming out? Hey, Zach, what happened in there? I love that when that baby is born. What are you going to name him? His name is John. What? You got no Johns in the family? Let's ask, let's ask, you know, Dad, what, what do you say? And he writes it on the tablet, John, his name is. And then he speaks, and then he's able to finish the prayer that he couldn't when he was cut off by the angel in doubt and disbelief. The angel announced the coming of Messiah to Mary in Luke 1. She was found with child. This child was none other than the Son of God. Jesus' birth was a chronological event. The birth of Christ happened at an exact moment in time in history. In Galatians, we studied this not long ago in chapter 4 and verse 4, that Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the right moment in history, it's right now, and that is when that message comes, and Mary is found with child, and that child is delivered at the right moment appointed time. God was, God is, and God will always be right on time. Does it always feel that way in our lives? God, where are you? When are you going to fill in the blank? God is always right on time. He's always been right on time. And he, as we look to the future, always will be right on time. So Jesus was given for us at the divinely appointed time. And also he was given for us under the immense authority of the Roman Empire. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this census was decreed by the emperor, by Caesar Augustus, and he makes an order and he sends out the word, world, I want the whole world to be registered. And at his command, the whole Roman empire has to move. This is some serious and significant authority. If you are this person and you say, I'll say jump, you say how high, and everybody says that. That's pretty powerful. That can be deceiving. That can leave you to believe, lead you to believe I'm I'm something. I'm I'm quite amazing. I give an order and the whole world begins to move. Wow. 
I'm really impressive. Observe the power of this Caesar. His decree set an entire empire in motion. So loved ones, it is easy even today for those who are self-made, those who are wealthy, those who have everything taken care of, it seems, to be lulled into the false idea, I'm in control. I've got it all together, like the rich fool that Jesus talked about. And what am I going to do? I'm going to tear down all these barns I have, and I'm going to build new barns. And God shows up to him that night and says, you fool. You're not going to do anything to those barns. And who's going to get the barns that you didn't have the time or ability to tear down? You forgot the plan for one thing, eternity. There's no greater foolish move than that, loved ones to check off the list of everything you're going to buy for everybody, the food, the grocery store, the whole list, get it all done. And just if we forget Jesus, we've missed it. Material wealth can easily cause people to forget the giver of all good things. Who is this Caesar Augustus? He reigned from 27 BC till AD 14. Caius Octavius was the favored grandnephew of Julius Caesar. So Caius took the name Caesar by adoption in Augustus for good measure. Julius Caesar was murdered, and this opened the door for Caius to walk on the center stage of the Roman world. When Mark Antony committed suicide, the path was cleared for Augustus Caesar to become the first Roman Empire, which in that day was like becoming a God. That would be what would lead Christians into significant trouble when they would see, say that, that Christ is Lord in their baptism. The Roman Empire was used to hearing Caesar is Lord. The Jewish world was used to hearing, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, and they weren't open to the full understanding of the Trinity. And so here Christians, after the resurrection, being baptized in Jesus' name, are immediately put out of both worlds, their religious upbringing and their empire that they lived in. Reminds us of an Old Testament king, Nebuchadnezzar, and how he was so filled with, look what I have done. Daniel chapter 4, I've built this, look at this, my hand, I'm amazing, I, 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 I. Be careful when you hear politicians talk like that. I did, and I did, and I, 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 I. They'll slide in a we every now and then. And listen when this Nebuchadnezzar was returned his senses. He, he went insane for seven years. They drove him out of the palace can you imagine what he must have looked like? Nails and hair like feathers and just what a creature. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. See, now there's a difference in his, in his thinking. I have an elevated position, but there's someone over me who is Most High, no one over him. And praised and honored him who lives forever. None of us do in this way. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and, and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. But he listened to what he says in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, let me tell you, First-hand experience, he is able to humble. It's much better for us to humble ourselves before him than to have the God of heaven, the King of heaven, have to humble us. Just take it from King Nebi, right? Learn from him. So like Nebuchadnezzar, like Caesar Augustus, kings, emperors, rulers, governors, presidents, they come and they go. They live, they rule, and they die. Be amazed at the plan of God. So while Caesar Augustus is thinking, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to send everybody here, and I'm going to send everybody there, and this is what's happening, understand what's really going on behind the scenes, is God is using an emperor of an empire, a world empire, to move one couple, one pair, one young man, one young lady he needs in Bethlehem. And he's using an emperor to carry out his will. Think about that. Think about the goodness of God. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Just a stream of water. Water is not that significant. You can go home this afternoon when you're washing your hands. You know, everybody, use the restroom, wash your hands, and just put your hand under the faucet and just turn the water. See how much resistance it gives you. And realize every time you wash your hands, that is the resistance that any world leader anywhere, leader of China, Russia, U.S., any world leader, that's the resistance they have against the king of creation. Wherever he wants, he just turns them and he's doing it in this case. Now, the census occurred in the context of Corinius, who was ruling as governor of Syria. Luke provided another historical point of reference that was clearly understood by his first century audience. Records to us have been lost to have all of these exact details, but this ruler governed Syria from AD 6 to AD 9. That would have been while Jesus was young. It's possible that this registration was during an earlier governorship of Quirinius, or that it was simply before his first governorship in Syria. In either case, Luke is not an heir. He's giving a firm fixed point. Here is where this census went out. This is when everybody had to move. And he's writing for Theophilus. His whole first century audience could go check this and research this and find this to be exactly where this happened. 
dates are not really that important, though. So there are some who say, well, you know, December 25th, is that Jesus' birthday? No, that's probably not Jesus' birthday. If you had a child and you adopted them and they didn't, maybe they were from another nation and they didn't have a birth certificate, would you withhold celebrating their birth at some point in the year? No, you wouldn't withhold goodness. The point is, this child brought into your home is alive. We know they were born. And it, it matters, but it doesn't ultimately matter what day they were born or where they were born. What matters is they're in our lives. We love them. God has given them to us. And so every life matters. So when we gather and we, we praise the Lord, we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Understand the first century audience, they had all of these details, but sometimes we get too preoccupied with details. And so the Lord gave us exactly what we need. Jesus was given for us at the divinely appointed time. He was given for us under the immense authority of the Roman Empire. And thirdly, he was given for us in a certain anticipated place. He was born, and there they had to go, and Joseph and Mary went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. There was a problem here. The problem of going home. For some, going home may not be the most exciting and joyful thing. It might bring up some difficult memories. For Joseph to go to his roots of his family, Mary was probably in the third trimester. We don't have the exact dates. We don't know how long they were in Bethlehem before, you know, from when they arrived to when the baby was born. But ladies, I mean, we've got little ones here all over. Would you really want to make this kind of a journey on the back of a donkey somewhere in the eighth month? Possibly nine month, ninth month? I don't think so. So going home isn't just, oh, this will be fine. This will be great. This is a problem. This is difficult. Don't you think that somewhere along the way, Joseph and Mary might have been saying, really, Lord, this is your plan? But we don't see any complaining. We don't see any grumbling. They're being guided by God. They're going where they're supposed to go, and they have to do what we have to do, and they have to trust their Father in heaven for the ultimate outcome over all the details. They're going back to this place called Bethlehem, and they're going, the name of this means house of bread. There's a promise, and they're going back. They're going back to this little obscure town I love the conclusion of Ruth. It's filled with hope. After Naomi finally went home and Ruth went with her, they heard that God had given bread in Israel. And Naomi says, I'm going home. And girls, Orpah and, and Ruth, you don't need to go with me. Uh, you can't go back with me. You think I'm going to find a husband and marry and have a son and you're going to wait for the son? It's not going to happen, girls. I release you. You don't have to stay with me. And Orpah kissed her and went on back to Moab. And Ruth said, I'm not leaving you. I'm going with you. And she did. And they get home, and how that all unfolds in the book of Ruth. And Ruth goes out, can I go out and, and go into the field and glean? Sure you can. And it just so happens that she ends up in Boaz's field. 
And Boaz shows up, the Lord be with you and the Lord with you. He's a stand-up man. He's not a man who takes advantage of women. And he says, who is that girl? Oh, you don't know? That's, that's the widow that came home with Naomi, your uh, relative. You make sure she stays in our field. And while you're at it, drop some extra grain. All right, you're the boss. It's your field. She comes home that day, and Naomi sees her coming. Where have you found favor? Where have you found grace, Ruth? I was in some guy's field named Boaz, and Naomi's, hang on, that's our relative. Oh, and it just, you know, goes into motion. And there's someone closer and Boaz next day after, you know, that whole interaction of I'll, I'll be your wife. Well, I would love to have you as my wife, but somebody is a, clear, a, a nearer redeemer. So I'll, I'll, I'll be seeing them in the morning. You go on home and he meets in the gate. He waits and here comes the guy and he says, hey, sit down. We got witnesses. We need to make a deal. Naomi's come back. Ruth has come back with her and you're up to redeem her. Okay, I'll buy uh, she's the Moabitess. That comes with the deal. Oh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not, nah, I can't do that deal. All right, here's my sandal, and on we go, and there's that Jewish custom exchange, and they marry, and at the end of the book of Ruth, a baby is put into grandmother's arms, and that, that little baby born Two generations later is David. It's a beautiful story. Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. It's three generations. It's amazing. She thought everything, God, you forgot me and I'm bitter. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. And all of the while, God is working. Do we understand this, loved ones, that in every season and situation of life, God is always working for our good and for his glory? We just can't always see it, but he is. So the prophecy comes out 400 years before Jesus is born, Micah 5 and verse 2. But you, the prophet says, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. <laughs> this is the no-hoper tribe. This is the no-hoper clan. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. They were given this, this prophecy that in the house of bread would come a ruler and then Jesus would be born, and in John chapter 6, he makes these unbelievable claims. And the Jewish, his brethren, the people of Israel, they, they hear what he's saying, but they can't process what he's saying. John 6 and verse 31, they say to Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread. They know their Bibles. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. 
Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Uh, And the bread that I will give for him for the life of the world is my flesh. What is he telling? I'm going to give my body to be broken. My flesh. The bread of life, John, John 6, 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live. How long? Forever. It's Christ. The bread of life, born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. He was given for us at the divinely appointed time under the immense authority of the Roman Empire in a certain anticipated place. And number four, he was given for us to a lowly set of authorized descendants. Joseph and Mary. The Bible says it was because he, Joseph, was of the house and lineage of David, so he had to go back to Bethlehem. That's his roots. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Their marriage had not yet been consummated. They were in a period of waiting, a period of proving. So they were arranged for marriage, and then there was a season, and then there would be the wedding, and then there would be the consummation of the marriage. They're in that season, and so he's betrothed to Mary, but they're not yet functioning as a husband and a wife. Gabriel explained the supernatural event that was taking place to Joseph. And Joseph then embraced the role of a servant. So he was not the human father of Jesus, but he was more than willing to adopt that boy when he was born and raise him as if he was his own. And even later on, people would say, we know who your father is, Jesus. That's how Joseph loved and brought up Jesus. Joseph was a descendant of David But his ancestor, a son of David, was disqualified. You see that his his family tree, his ancestry is in Luke 3. And in Jeremiah 22, Joseph's ancestor was banned from the throne. No descendant of yours, you son of David, no, no descendant of yours will reign. Joseph is a son, he's a descendant of David, but his line is disqualified. Mary, on the other hand, her lineage also goes back to David. Her lineage goes back, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 1, can be traced back through Rehoboam and Solomon. Her line is not disqualified. Think about this. Both parents, descendants of David, and all of God's sovereign plan in all of the mess and chaos in Israel's history, but God's plan is moving forward, and it is a plan of redemption. It is a plan of grace. It is a plan of salvation. Mary, she's a humble girl. She's of low estate. Her song of praise is saturated with praise, with worship and gratitude and confidence in the Lord. This young girl, probably 13, 14 years old, and when she sees the whole plan of God and it's confirmed with her relative Elizabeth is also about to have a child and she's there and she bursts forth in this psalm of 
this amazing song of praise, Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my, don't miss this. Mary needed a savior. Mary was not without sin. Mary needed a savior and she rejoiced at the news. Messiah is given in and through you. She needed a savior. Look at the reality of her position in life though. Verse 48, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, graced by the Lord. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And then she was ready to go home and encounter all of the shame and embarrassment and conflict of you have a baby bump and you're not yet fully married but her confidence was in the Lord. Do you, do you see what I'm saying about how the world has gotten it wrong and at times we as Christians, we buy into the wrong thinking when it comes to the holiday season, which then can add to our own sorrow and depression instead of Mary bursts forth in joy and she's about to have the worst time in her life until she sees her son on a cross and that eclipses this. Think about this story. Think about the account of God becoming a man. She was a, filled with praise. So Jesus was given for us to a lowly set of authorized descendants. And Jesus was given for us, the last point here is without the attention or appreciation of the world. Verse seven, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is her firstborn son. There would be more sons and there would be daughters born to Mary and to Joseph. Matthew one says that they did not come together until after the birth of Christ. And then they had a normal marriage. No doubt they had difficulties to work through like every marriage does. And parenting. How do you parent God in human flesh? You think, you, we think we have it challenging? The Lord is watching. <laughs> and Joseph, you, uh, hi, Jesus. Yes, no, no. Go in your room. Stop listening to us. What are we doing here? Oh. Maybe that could work out to an advantage of Jesus. Now, you heard what Joseph did. You know what I said. Who's right here, Jesus? Come on. I don't, know what that, I don't know what that all looked like in that home. But they knew this child is different. This child is the word made flesh. And he was given without the attention or appreciation of the world. Here we see a caring mother that she gave birth to her firstborn. He was a precious child that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths to bind the limbs of the newborn. 
to protect him, to keep him warm. He needed, he was born, God was born in human flesh, needing everything from Joseph and Mary. Think about this divine plan. And if you're here and it doesn't become personal, this is just a story. This is just, oh, that, that's what we hear. I know that already. But understand, we're reminded of this simple truth, this simple account. This is what God did in love for you. He wasn't born into Caesar's palace. That wouldn't even be close to fitting. He left heaven to come to earth, to be born wrapped in these clothes, often used in burial preparation. Loved ones, Jesus was born, okay? You can just take that, that's history. But Jesus was born to live a sinless life, die a death on the cross deserved for sinners, to be buried and rose again, that is doctrine. So we don't stop as Christians with just the story, the history, Jesus was born, and here's gifts, and here's carols, and here's singing, and on with all of the things we go through. We want to get to, but why was Jesus born? I pray that you come to the understanding personally, why was Jesus born in this specific place to these nobody parents, lowly parents, why? There's a picture that'll come on the screen. This is a picture in Montana. This is a dock. It's uh, on what was my grandpa and grandma's place up in the mountains. There was, when I was about four years old, there was a little raft, like a Tom Sawyer raft, just logs tied together. I was out there on the water, my dad the day before, and he was with me and he was swimming around and I was on the, I was on the raft. The next day, me being wise and all, I had this great idea. I'm going to go down. And so I was down on the raft and I pushed off from the dock and I had a cane fishing pole and I threw it in and my four-year-old wise, smart, not so smart self said, I think I need that back. And I jumped in after the cane. One problem, I swam like a brick. I didn't know how to swim. And so I remember being under that dock or that place where that dock is, if it's been repaired in all these years. My grandmother was up in the window of the kitchen, Victor, Brian's in the lake, go get him. And my grandpa ran down the hill and he reached down in the water from that dock and he pulled me up and rescued my life. Think about this. If he would not have been sent by my grandmother, if my grandmother would not have been watching me, there's no me here. Don't say amen there, all right? No. There's no daughters, there's no marriage, there's no all of this, all of these events. But God in his grace, I needed rescue. I was, I was going down. I was swimming horribly. I wasn't swimming, I was sinking. I came out, I was scared. I remember standing in a little pop-up camper with no clothes on, freezing, scared. What was I thinking? I'm sure that's what my parents were saying. What were you thinking, you know? <laughs> You're not my kid, are you? What in the world? No, my kid wouldn't do that. I don't know what all was going on, but I was glad to be alive. 
The story of Christmas is a story of salvation. It's we need a rescue. And whenever we forget that, that's what contributes to being let down or unfulfilled expectations in a holiday season because we're taking our eyes off of why did Jesus come? He came to rescue us. And he received an unfitting welcome. He was basically unwanted and unwelcome by most all of the world. How much has changed? Not much has changed, loved ones. But this is exactly how God chose to come to earth. And this is the heart of Christmas. So when you're watching those wonderful movies and you're enjoying and you're cooking, but listen to what is being said. The heart of Christmas, the spirit of Christmas. This is the message of Christmas. God became a man. John MacArthur says it this way. The first time he came, there was no room for him. The next time he comes, the whole world won't be able to contain his glory. Think about that. That's where we just ended in Jude. The first time he came, very few people. Shepherds, well, that was not impressive for anybody. Shepherds couldn't even testify in the court of law. They were nobodies. And then came the wise men following the star. Loved ones, Jesus was given for us at the divinely appointed time. Just think about this. Under the immense authority of the Roman Empire, in a certain anticipated place to a lowly set of authorized descendants, and he was given without the attention or appreciation of the world. Is that the way God should have come? Have you ever done something for someone and then they didn't say thank you? You held the door and they just, they just walked through. Does that get you? Wish I'd have known that. I wouldn't open the door for him. I'm going to slam on him. Okay, nothing took God by surprise, and he knew this is what will happen, and I'm coming for you. He was given for us, but more specifically, he was given for you. How have you responded to this gift? John 3.16, it's at the bottom of your notes. It's the greatest gift ever given for God so loved the world. You can put your name in there. That God so loved, and I could just start going down the rows of all of the names. God so loved you that he gave his only son. Would you do that for someone else? Give your child so that they could go free. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There are the two outcomes, loved ones. And it's all based on your response to Jesus. That if you receive, if you trust in him, confess him as Lord or reject him and say, that's a nice story, but not for me. That's for other people. You missed the point that God came for you. He gave his son for you so that you could be forgiven of your sin, so that you could be adopted as his child, so that you could have life that never ends. There's no better message than this except Easter. (laughs) And the check cleared, and he rose from the dead, and mission accomplished. 
And then that will be superseded by the day he returns and we see him face to face. And we just sang about that today with one voice, right? Our voice with all the saints of all generations singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So when you think about, I mean, we got the little, little baby right here. I know there's other babies around, babies in the nursery. You moms, and you're holding these babies, and you, you look at that skin, and you think about how soft, how anything, so much going to hurt these babies, how much protection, and this is how God came to earth for you and for me. Have you received the gift of salvation? Are you leading other peoples, other people, and even peoples to know God's gift of salvation? Don't forget that as we enter into this week and we're exchanging gifts and memories and food and meals all given to us by our Father in heaven. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for giving Jesus. Thank you for lives, precious little lives that we've even, we have around us this morning. And they remind us and we think about how Jesus was born of a virgin to live the life that I could never live. And he was born to die the death that I deserve to die for my, my rebellion against God my selfishness, my self-centeredness. And Jesus, you chose the nails. And you went to the cross and you laid down your life for me and for anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in you. And so God, I'm praying that today as this message of the greatest gift ever given goes out, that in your love and mercy, by the power of your spirit, that you will open eyes that have been blinded to the gospel, that you will soften hearts that have been hardened to your good news. And you will convict us of sin, Lord. And you will convince us of what is right, that we will come to see Jesus. We will turn our eyes upon him and trust in him and worship him for all of our days. For Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy. You are the lamb slain for sinners. So we need you, we trust you, and I pray you will have freedom to work in our hearts and in our lives, in our families, in this congregation, in our community and world today. For the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.